Welcome to the Proletarian Contrarian, the podcast where we reevaluate bad films through a leftist perspective. I'm Nick. And I'm Lewis. I've had something on my mind lately. Um, J.R.R. Tolkien once wrote that of the Nine Walkers, um, Legolas was the one who probably accomplished the least. Um, that sentiment is borne out in the film uh, Elizabeth Town from 2005, directed by Cameron Crowe. <laughs> Hell yeah, folks. Um, and also, I want to call out my girlfriend in eighth grade. Um, she was in love with Orlando Bloom, um, but this movie proves he sucks, and Legolas is overrated, so uh, fuck all you Legolas stands out there. <laughs> yeah, so uh, this film is directed by Cameron Crowe, who uh, really should bear the brunt of our ire, I think, uh, oh, yeah. more than Orlando Bloom, because this is just... Uh, this is, you know, him making a, a film about his own life. Apparently, this the story of Orlando Bloom's character Drew Baylor is the story of Cameron Crowe, very autobiographical, and um, the one of the most narcissistic autobiographical films I have ever seen in my life, folks. Um, mm. So, just to give you um, the bare bones plot details. As I said, Orlando Bloom plays a character named Drew Baylor. He is a up-and-coming shoe designer who, after his what should have been the most successful shoe in the history of the world, basically, um, he realizes, as does the company, that this shoe, for some reason, is bad, uh, and it's recalled. And as his life is falling apart, his father dies uh, during a trip to Kentucky, uh, and uh, Orlando Bloom has to go and uh, pick up his father's body and do all that nonsense. Uh, on the way, he meets a quirky airline stewardess played by uh, Kristen Dunst. Her character's name is Claire. And um, yeah, hijinks ensue. <laughs> A lot of shit ensues. <laughs> this movie's really, this movie's really bad. Like, I, I know we're gonna talk about what we like, and there, there are some, there are some salvageable aspects, but probably one of the worst films we watched for this, for this podcast. Um, this is the film that gave rise to the term "manic pixie dream girl." This is Patient Zero for "manic pixie dream girl." Um, the Kirsten Dunst uh, character, obviously. Um, but yeah, like like Lewis was saying, th- this is Cameron Crowe working through his own father's uh, death and his own experiences with going back to, to rural Kentucky, but doing it in the most agonizingly navel-gazy, narcissistic way. And it, it's it's just really, really difficult to sit through. <laughs> yeah, film. this film is, you know, it's very emblematic of early aughts independent cinema this film has a voiceover which it's the main character talking about how great they are and how much they think about the world compared to everybody else um Mm -hmm. just some really uh just some really unfortunate lines of dialogue uh throughout this voiceover um (sighs) manage dream girl as as nick said um something that uh, I think existed and has existed for a long time um, in different iterations. But, you know, you see this a lot in films of this uh, time period, be it, um, you know, Natalie Portman in Garden State or basically Zoe Deschanel's whole career during this time period. 
Um, mm-hmm. And we'll get into kind of, you know, that classification and if it's accurate, if it's overused, uh, if it's misogynistic, we'll talk about that soon. Um, but it's, it is a very important aspect of early aughts cinema. I, I would call this movie definitely significant in what it represented and in, in kind of what it led to. I don't, I don't, I don't know if I would say like people interested in the history of film should necessarily watch it, but I wouldn't be surprised if it like, if, if it's a footnote, um, in terms of American independent cinema. And that's, that's actually a question I had for you. It, is this an independent movie? Like, like what does that term mean as it's applied to Elizabeth town? Sure. I think that's an interesting question, actually. Thank you for asking it, Nicholas. Yeah, I try. (laughs) So, you know, I think any film by Cameron Crowe, especially around this period of time, people would lump in as independent cinema. Um, I think it's it's accurate to call it kind of indie wood, where it is that that border Mm. on independent cinema and Hollywood cinema. Obviously, we have, you know, a cavalcade of Hollywood actors and actresses. We have Orlando Bloom as the main character, Kirsten Dunst as the love interest. Susan Sarandon plays um, Orlando Bloom's mom. Judy Greer plays his sister. Jessica Biel plays his ex-girlfriend. Alec Baldwin plays his boss. Um, Paul Schneider, um, who at this time was actually kind of, you know, an actual indie actor. Um, He's uh, the architect in the show... um, Parks and Rec, who is Leslie Snope's love interest for the first few seasons, and then he oh, disappears entirely. Um, yeah, they, they kill him off or something. <laughs> <laughs> they don't kill him off. He moves away, but it might as well, right? I mean, he's gone. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it has people like that who are actual independent actors who started in very low-budget filmmaking, um, and then people who at this point in time in 2005 are established stars. Um, But it also has a a small um, budget. I mean, the budget I think was 25 million for Hollywood. That's, you know, a drop in the bucket. Um, And then it's, it didn't, you know, release um, wide release is probably something this film didn't get. I'm sure it got a limited release. Honestly, mm-hmm. that's probably why it only made. Um, actually, I should take it back. It wasn't twenty five million. Twenty five million is how much it made in theaters, but it was made for fifty gotcha. million. So yeah, okay, okay, um, okay. Wow, oh jeez. Yeah, so I think um, it's it's accurate to say it's indie wood. You know, it's on that border. Yeah, because that's a pet peeve of mine, and and it had been back in back in the early aughts, like when quote unquote indie film, the indie aesthetic was really coming into its own. Um, like like these aren't indie movies like like they're they're made outside maybe they're sometimes made outside of big budget studios but um the indie cred it, it's 100 percent a manufactured aesthetic it 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 had like emo or like down tempo soundtracks with kind of a melancholy melancholy uh tone plastered over it um with some affected lo-fi camera work and you slap all that onto a movie and call it indie and it's good and um that that, that's not independent cinema like like just just as a term that exists like divorced from any any secondary context that that's not independent film that that's kind of a slap in the face to like truly independent creators out there yeah for sure i think you know everything you just described is um indicative of someone like wes anderson and his actual independent films that he made when he started you know bottle rocket Mm -hmm. 
is is pretty independent at the time you know the the wilson brothers uh luke and owen wilson were not stars i mean they they mm. grew up with wes anderson or at least went to college with him they're all from texas that was a big break for all of them um okay. of course you get james can in that movie but that's one star in a movie right. of you know very relatively unknown people um, so I think everything you just described, those aesthetics, that the, the musical choices, you know, the melancholy, I, I don't want to say he pioneered that. I'm sure we can dig further back and, sure. you know, look at 80s cinema, even of uh, independent cinema of like the 80s. And, and it's definitely there as well. Um, but in the iteration we currently have, it is really very, um, very much from a kind of a Wes Anderson tradition onward. But yeah, it, it can be... Those things had some um, authenticity at once, mm-hmm. at one at one point in time, and uh, yeah, it's uh, it's just become a caricature at this point. That, that's not to say you can't make like a melancholy movie with a particular type of soundtrack, even even with a specific aesthetic, and and it can't be good. I mean, I'm sure it's theoretically possible in today's day and age, but um, it, it's just such a cliche of itself at this point. It's such a stereotype of like. Oh, the, the the indie movie like the it it just conjures up images of of this or of um Garden State and it I I don't know anyone who takes that shit seriously anymore. I mean, I'm sure there are people who do. Yeah, I don't know, but it's really yeah they've really sullied their own waters with films like this. Um, so I want to talk about and we had mentioned this the Manic Pixie Dream Girl um, classification yes. and stereotype. Uh, it was coined by uh, Nathan Rabin of AV Club. He actually had written um, this review of the film two years later, so he wrote it in 2007. Um, it was uh, kind of prep work for his book called My Year of Flops. Um, so he did these this series for AV Club um, where he had case files, and this was case file number one, um, mm. Elizabethtown. So uh, Nathan Rabin writes, In Elizabethtown, all of Crow's formidable virtues as a filmmaker work against him. His palpable affection for his characters, always one of his most admirable traits, morphs into a kind of pathological emotional neediness. Love me, love me, love me, screams every frame in every character. Elizabethtown feels like an x-ray of Crow's soul set to the soundtrack of his life. So this is basically what we just were talking about. The narcissism, um, you know, this what once could be considered, uh, you know, a sincerity of of style, of filmmaking, um, kind of, you know, kind of wearing on you. Um, uh, so then Rabin goes on to describe what a Manny, Manny Pixie Dream Girl is. And um, this is where it gets interesting, folks. Uh, oh, my, this, this, this is crazy. <laughs> like, when you, when you first showed me this passage, I was like, okay, yeah, whatever, it's fine, it's fine. And then it, I didn't, I'm not even going to spoil it. Just I'll let you take it away. <laughs> yeah. So I had, um, I knew that Nathan Rabin had invented the term. I knew it was for Elizabeth town and, and kind of for mm-hmm. garden state as well, as he mentions here, but I had never actually read this review until we watched the film. So, um, here it goes, folks. <laughs> take it away. <laughs> Dunst embodies a character type I like to call the Manic Pixie Dream Girl. See Natalie Portman in Garden State for another prime example. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl exists solely in the fevered imaginations of sensitive writer-directors to teach broodingly soulful young men to embrace life and its infinite mysteries and adventures. The Manic Pixie Dream Girl is an all-or-nothing proposition. Audiences either want to marry her instantly, despite the Manic Pixie Dream Girl being, you know, a fictional character, (laughs) 
And <laughs> this is the line that gets, uh, I mean, I just, I don't know what you want to describe it. I think this this is misogyny, basically. Yeah. But um, So Nathan Rabin continues, or they want to commit grievous bodily harm against them and their immediate family. As for me, well, let's just say I'm not going to propose to dunce psychotically chipper waitress in the sky anytime soon. I think the the notion that Nathan Rabin think that Kirsten Dunst would find him attractive is like arguably as as delusional and insane and misogynistic as his, as his fantasies of wanting to like murder her. But not that I even know what he looks like, but I mean, yeah, like the the manic pixie dream girl, like it it's a trope, it's a thing that th- this movie created, kind of as as you just said, um, but it it's it's one of those terms it, it, it's like uh what, what is it mary sue it doesn't mean anything at this point it's like it, it means it, it's shorthand for an annoying shitty not, not even shitty it just it, it's shorthand for a female character that has a certain set of like aesthetic signifiers that i don't like that's all it means yeah at this point that's exactly what it means and i think you know it kind of can mean something interesting. It can mean, uh, you know, a female character whose only motivations are to make, uh, you know, the male character feel better. Mm. But um, I think even calling it, even calling that kind of character a manic pixie dream girl is, is you know, off base. I mean, honestly, you know, that kind of character has existed in film for a very long time. The, the female character yeah. who doesn't have, you know, her own set of motivations or inner life Um so, yeah, I just it's an odd classification. The fact that it's become such, you know, um, a part of uh, film parlance and jargon is is just um, like you said, it's a shorthand. That's the unfortunate reality of a lot of film criticism mm-hmm. um, and reviews is that shorthand gets a point across. But it, what to what end and what point is it actually getting across? Um, s- similar to the, the term Mary Sue. Um, Manic Pixie Dream Girl, I'll, I'll, I'll throw Robin a bone here. It, it did have a very strict, de- as far as I know, a very strict definition, and it did mean a very specific character archetype. But um, simil- similarly, that similarly to Mary Sue, it has morphed into everything you just said and everything we, we just said. It, it has morphed beyond its um, original definition. Um, and, and like you were saying, internet, like, internet film discourse relies on these shorthands it 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 runs off this vocabulary um that completely elides any kind of nuance um it, it's that goddamn site uh tv tropes i hate yeah, tv tropes exactly tv tropes is is in, in my opinion it's like ground zero of all the of all this reductive um vocabulary of um of breaking stories and narratives down to their component parts that are less than the sum of their of their parts like like it's always fucking nerds man like nerds do the shit nerds have to classify everything and when they take that approach to storytelling and analyzing storytelling oh we can tropes that's a that's a thing that we can like build them up like legos and rearrange shit and all, all of which is to say um so what you're trying to say is uh tv tropes and nerds uh did 9-11 yes <laughs> yes Thank you for uh, eloquently summing up my um cool. my, yeah. my my wide ranging point there. Yeah, they did film nine eleven for sure. Um, there, there's there's another um, little bit here you have from Rabin in his in his piece. He he writes, Elizabeth Town shows what happens when a gifted writer director lets his big old heart do his brains work for him. 
Yet the film stuck with me in ways genuinely successful films haven't. I find myself talking and thinking about it all the time. I mean, you do you, man, but like... Yeah. I mean, also, I guess, I don't know, we're talking about it now, so... It, yeah, but like, something. we get it, and he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I, 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 I kind of didn't include this part in there, but um, the, in, the introduction to this piece, he does talk about how Cameron Crowe is one of his favorite filmmakers, so... Yeah, you know. he doesn't... We get it, and he does not, for sure. <laughs> Now, you know, I think our generation, um, especially people who went to college around the time we did in, 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 in um, 2000, when did we, I don't even actually remember, but uh, eight, nine, <laughs> whenever, who the <laughs> fuck knows. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I remember, like, everybody was obsessed with Almost Famous um, in films like Say Anything, you know, um, lesser extent Jerry Maguire, like fucking weirdos mm-hmm. of our generation like jerry Maguire, but um other cameron crow films have stuck with our generation and you know i guess you could say films like jerry Maguire have stuck with previous generations um sure so he he has definitely made films that um have a place you know in the culture they are cultural touchstones not we made a zoo though fuck that movie i'm sure no one's oh, actually God. seen it i'm never gonna see it maybe well maybe i don't know maybe we'll do it for this movie uh for yeah, this maybe. this movie podcast but uh although i don't know i think it was successful i think it got oscars or at least was nominated for them we bought it we bought a zoo got an oscar uh i don't know if it won but i think it was nominated for oscars jesus i mean i have absolutely zero respect for that institution but like if (laughs) just (laughs) drilling through rock bottom at this point if that's true um i think i think do do you think it's fair to say like cameron crowe is the gen x version of john hughes or is john hughes the gen x version? Hmm. it's like when when did he come out yeah i mean john hughes is older right so i mean he's definitely a baby boomer he was a baby boomer r.i.p um but no i think that's fair i think um Cameron Crowe is definitely of the Gen X sort and made films uh, for for Gen X, you know, and not to, you know, hang this all on generational thinking, um, but it's, right, right. it's, yeah. it's somewhat relevant um, in, in this case. And I think I think you could take a more like a more uh, historical materialist approach um, <laughs> to to the generation to the generational divide thing here, like um, when a an age bracket of people um when when more of them grow up with relative affluence um i I think it's fair to say that their their aesthetic sensibilities that that would affect their aesthetic and um emotional sensibilities to a degree i I certainly don't want to don't want to be like um uh essentialist about it or anything but um Generational thinking is tricky, but it's not completely without merit. I guess, I guess that's what I'll put. Sure, I agree. I, like you said, um, you, to include the um, the historical moment that people are born right. and raised and develop in is important. Um, and I think, yeah, a lot of that does show up in this film. Um, yes. There yes. are some historical moments in this film, folks. Oh, that, my God. Uh, I, it's just incredible. I... We have to talk about them like last. They're just like we could best, do a whole last, fucking yeah. podcast about the two historical moments uh, in American history that Cameron yep. Crowe highlights uh, highlights in quotation marks. I mean, he he glosses over these two very important moments in history. Um, he highlights them with a sharpie. <laughs> literally, I mean, yes. yeah. Um, Goddamn. So I guess we should probably talk about the movie as opposed to just uh, Nathan <laughs> Rabbit. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean. Uh, that's good like you know we talk about uh we talk about the context we talk about blah 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 we're not gonna do do standard this like beat by beat 
for we're a good show we, we talk about real shit in this program <laughs> yes yes definitely um and there's no reason to, for us to go beat by beat in this movie because uh we would then uh beat by beat our heads against the wall hey yeah nice <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah i guess you you pretty much gave the basic bare bones plot description um and and that's i mean the the weird thing about this movie like the, the plot is very simple you can you can tell the plot in like three sentences and um in in typical uh aughts era indie movie fashion like everything is just stretched out like really stretched out and like stuffed with quirky little moments and quirky dialogue beats and like and that's all that happens like like he he drives a lot like (laughs) this movie is just like the fucking mexican like half of it is him driving back and forth (laughs) yeah that's true um you know, and there's a lot of great films that, um, and, and you know, these are actual independent films or even foreign films that are just about people driving. Um, you know, two films of uh, of Iranian cinema, actually, if you will. Mm. Uh, oh. Uh, oh, so um, yeah, not not to not to not to denigrate the act of driving, like as as a subject for film, but the way it's done here was very similar to the way it's done in the Mexican. That's true. So, uh, as I was saying, in Iranian cinema, uh, <laughs> the, uh, there's a film called Ten, which is about a uh, uh, a female uh, cab driver in, I think, Tehran, and the film mm-hmm. is just ten shots of her in the in the driver's seat and ten different passengers um, mm. in the passenger seat while she takes them around. And then there's also uh, Taste of Cherry, um, which is by. Abbas Kurastami. Uh, actually, both these films are by Abbas Kurastami. And um, that's about a guy who just uh, drives around the Iranian countryside uh, asking people if they will bury him after he kills himself. So driving movies are cool, and they couldn't be cool, but in terms of the Mexican and this movie, they're lame. Well, Lewis, you're not the only one with uh, deep, um, obscure film knowledge. Have you ever heard of a little driving movie called Taxi Driver? Oh, I'm walking here. That's actually a different movie entirely. Oh yeah, so uh, fuck you. Where the the film knowledge is even now because you just canceled out your other two references with that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so apparently um, Orlando Bloom's character Drew was the the lead designer of this shoe, which is like the most cataclysmically awful shoe that ever existed, and it, it, everyone hates it. And, and that's why the company's going to go under or something. It, it, it's really, it's really Ill, ill-defined. Yeah, it, it is, uh, though, an ugly shoe. Like, they show it a few oh, times. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's, like, <laughs> yeah, one so of the ugly props. shoes I've ever seen. <laughs> props for that. Um, his boss is played by, as I mentioned previously, Alec Baldwin. And um, Alec Baldwin was probably paid millions of dollars. Probably, like, half of the budget went to him mm-hmm. and the other half went to Susan Sarandon. Um, yep. But, yeah, he's just, like... He phones it in, but he phones it in in a very Alec Baldwin way. You know, he plays an asshole, and he plays an asshole well. Yeah, um, it, was, it was good casting on that part. Um, another part of the little opening sequence that I, that I kind of did like, um, there, there were little moments of Orlando Bloom noticing things, like the like the emergency escape cat hatch on the helicopter that he's riding in to the corporate office. Another thing is, like, I forget what it is, but like he notices, like, the helicopter blades that's what it is yes little moments like indicating oh i want to fucking kill myself because i just lost a billion dollars to this company it was like it was that, that those little moments were well done um also as he's walking down the hallway to 
Alec Baldwin's office. Um, he's remembering all the good times he had at the company, how he met his girlfriend, Jessica Beale, how he, how he designed the shoe and everyone like threw him a party. And like, it's just intercut with him looking like depressed as shit. Um, and like, I've, I've felt like that when walking to like visit a boss or go to the principal's office or whatever. So kudos to that part. Yeah. I actually think the intro of this film is, is decent if mm-hmm. it would just, um, you know, if his voiceover was just entirely wiped clean short short sidebar digression um what's your opinion on voiceovers in movies i know they're pretty divisive yeah i mean like you just talked about taxi driver that's a great voiceover a lot Mm -hmm. of martin scorsese films are great voiceovers um just depends on what you're writing and saying right i don't know i'm not against it on a whole and i don't think they're yeah i don't think they're bad or good it's you know i think they're fairly neutral depending on you know as as inherent no inherent value i would say that that's fair. I, I I think I just read this once in a some some long forgotten film blog. So I'm I'm not going to claim credit for it, but I can't remember. <laughs> so, I can't remember a source. Um, but the person had written like, um, there should be like a rule for all like, se- like all cinema. Like voiceovers should only be used when it's clear that the character is lying to themselves about something. Um, and, and of course that is just like a maxim or whatever. But it, it kind of always stuck in the back of my head as like when it's appropriate to use voiceovers and, and you can, it's one of those things like I don't think you can really do sincerely all that well it's very hard to do them um but yeah so that's a little side digression yeah I, I think um I think that's an interesting take on them definitely um yeah that's all I have to say I don't know fuck it <laughs> <laughs> fuck, fuck them all <laughs> um and then after Orlando Bloom gets sacked he tries to kill himself and this was actually pretty funny in like a tragic, com- tragic, tragic comedic kind of way. Um, he has like a bike machine in his house. Yes. And he he tapes a cooking knife to it, and he he like modifies it so that when he pedals, the knife will like move forward and stab them in the chest. But like the knife keeps falling out of the duct tape holder that he makes. <laughs> Yeah, the the beginning of the film, he talks about like failure and fiasco, and I thought it was hilarious that he would even fail at killing himself. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Trigger warning, you know, there's suicidal ideation. Of course, um, we don't yeah, want to, you sure. know, uh, downplay that or or make light of it. But um, trigger warning for sure. But like part part of grappling with those with those tendencies is to joke about them. So I, I think that's kind of it, it's a legit artistic thing to do. Yeah, no, I I liked it honestly. I I didn't think it was um, any in any way as problematic within the film, and it added some at least some characterization to mm-hmm. what would otherwise be a very bland, um, you know, proxy character. Basically, okay, yeah. What what otherwise is just a bland <laughs> proxy character. <laughs> so yeah, Drew gets a call that his his dad had died. Um, from his sister Judy Greer, who introduces herself as Drew. This is your sister, so kudos to that <laughs> sterling dialogue there. Um, and his mom, Susan Sarandon, is obviously torn up. Um, she's really good in this movie. Um, she, she's the other big name actor that they got, uh, the, the other older established big name actor, in addition to Baldwin that they got. And um, she, she's honestly like a thousand times more interesting than any other than either of her kids. 
Yeah, I even think uh, the portrayal of grief uh, from her perspective in this film is is fairly interesting. Um, Mm. She doesn't want to, she tries to deal with it in um, what maybe, you know, on face value could be considered like quirky ways. But honestly, you know, um, I I know people of her um, age group who've dealt with grief of a partner um, and, you know, she, uh, at one point she's like, you know, I'm going to do these other things and try to live my life. Um, she tries to learn how to cook. She tries to learn how to, um, fix uh, a car. She mm-hmm. wants to learn how to tap her hus- dance. Her husband, her husband's, her husband's car. car. Um, yeah. yeah, she wants to learn how to tap dance. She wants to learn how to do stand up comedy. Um, you know, kind of living through this moment of grief, um, it with these other, um, what might, you know, other people might consider distractions, but it's, you know, just, it's, it is, um, just realizing that, um, you don't die when your partner dies. Right. Um, so I, I think it's actually an interesting portrayal and, um, pretty true to life. Not that all cinema has to be true to life, but, uh, in a film like this, that is trying to, I think this, this aspect does, uh, it it actually works. Um, Mm -hmm. unlike almost everything else. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Um, especially the dialogue, like, like I said, like there's this shot, um, after Drew learns that his dad dies of him walking, walking through the airport. I think they live in in Oregon. Yeah. They live in Oregon. That's a central. Oh yeah. That's a central. (laughs) How how could I forget? Fuck. Um, so they're walking through the airport in Oregon, him, Judy Greer and Susan Sarandon. And, um, just the dialogue is so wretched, like just, repeating stuff and, and, and saying things that no human being ever says. And, and like you were saying in a movie ostensibly grounded in reality, that that's essential. That's crucial. Anyway, good stuff about, about this movie that we like. Well, one more bad line of dialogue that is uttered, um, by, uh, Orlando Bloom's character relating to his father's death. It is probably one of my favorite lines in the movie that he says, cause most of his lines are throwaway and garbage yep. for a main character. That's, pretty unfortunate but Mm -hmm. this line like will stick with me for a very long time because it's it's just fucking hilarious i don't know what um i don't know what cameron crow is doing with this line maybe this is something he thought um like in his real life when he um so orlando bloom's character is seeing his father for the first time laid out in a casket and uh he goes over to him he's like i just there's a word for this. I'm just trying to think of a word for this moment. And he, and he's just, he's like looking at his dad from different angles. Cause his uncle tells him to do that. And he's like yep. whimsical. <laughs> he's like, this is whimsical. <laughs> and then like just cuts to the next scene. Doesn't it show his dad smiling in the casket? Yeah. Yeah, it does. Yeah, yeah. Like his, People his... think that might be a goof, but I don't know. It might actually be intentional. It's, it's hilarious. I thought, I thought it was an intentionally, albeit like, awkwardly handled attempt to show like oh this is what he's thinking in his mind (laughs) but yeah he calls his dead father whims and honestly like if that if that line was delivered in a different way to show that he's like depersonalizing and like this is he's handling his grief poorly or something like that that could have been an interesting line but like it's totally not played for that it's totally played for like oh like he's at peace and he's whimsical (laughs) Just. Yeah, I, for me, I thought it was like um, maybe Cameron Crowe having some, uh, you know, self-realization that he himself and his character is just like utterly solipsistic. Uh, yeah, but yeah. I, 
I, I don't know. That's giving no, that's, uh, <laughs> Cameron Crowe maybe a little bit uh, too much credit. Yeah, it's a generous read. Um, <laughs> that's what we're here for, though, folks. Generous reads of terrible generous, movies. <laughs> that's one of the innumerable alternate titles for this podcast, A Generous Read. <laughs> um, so, yeah, he boards the plane and... In typical quirky indie fashion, oh, he's the only person on this entire flight. Like, oh, isn't that crazy? And um, he's the only passenger on the flight. And he, that's when he meets Claire, um, played by Kirsten Dunst. And she acts really unprofessionally as like a, as like a stewardess. Yeah. But not, not to be like, a, like a, a scold, like, oh, she shouldn't do that. But it's just weird. It, it just she comes off as very invasive because like, yeah. of course. Mm-hmm. And that's such a fucking like manic pixie dream girl independent cinema thing like this beautiful quirky artsy free-spirited like woman is just like obsessed with this guy in like he can't get over himself so she has to keep pushing and keep pushing and being aggressive but like in a cutesy feminine aggressive way and it's like like yeah Orlando, Orlando Bloom's attractive but like no one just like throws themselves at, at at someone like that in public. That's just weird. Yeah, and it's her red eye flight too. Like it's at night. You know, I'm mm-hmm. sure she's been working all day. You know, mm-hmm. um, there are moments where she's like, I just want to make this, you know, uh, as as easy as possible for both of us. Like she asks him at one point to like move up because in the cabin because he's like all the way at the 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 back. And she even says something like, you know, I just don't want to keep walking back. You know, that far. Right. Right. Um, so there's there's those interesting moments, but they're really undercut by everything else in that scene. And that part of like, I just don't want to walk around like the reason she says that is because she she's trying to do like a cutesy thing for his benefit of course she's like oh I'll give you a free upgrade to first class and then she's like she literally says like fine i'll try this tactic to him she's like i'll like do it for my benefits so in order to walk around because like you're so magnanimous i don't know it's whatever yeah. the, the but then he good. moves up so he's woke that's just that's <laughs> he leans in because he leans <laughs> um the soundtrack is dope, especially um, at this part. You you knew the song that they were playing at this part? Uh, I had recognized it as a Tom Petty song, at least. Um, so, yeah, when Claire is introduced... So, actually, most characters have a song that introduces them, kind of like a leitmotif, but I, only one song, I think, reoccurs in this film, and that's that weird Elton John song about the Civil War. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I That did sound like Elton John. I knew that sounded familiar. Yeah, but so there's one song by tom petty called it'll all work out that is kind of claire's introduction song it's about you know this beautiful girl who wears faded jeans and soft black leather and like you know everything's going to be okay because she's here blah 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 um but then uh, i thought it was interesting to compare that to the song that introduces drew which was uh jesus was a cross maker by the hollies which is like the song about redemption and christ and you know so it's just interesting Uh, the the level of import uh that cameron crowe places on uh these individuals you know he's just like screaming it at you basically (laughs) uh uh, yes that that famous parable wherein jesus uh designed a shitty track shoe and and cost (laughs) cost a conglomerate billion dollars and got chewed out by alec baldwin who's god in this analogy i guess well you see you understand nicholas uh jesus made crosses and then he was you know put on a cross uh drew made shoes and the shoe was his downfall do you understand (laughs) 
Yes. Yeah. Like it's like when Jesus washed the feet of the apostles, he just should he should have slapped on those monstrosities that Drew came up with instead. <laughs> Which had like, the most ridiculous name, like the spasmaticas or something like that. Yeah. Oh my God. It's like spasmato spasmatica with like an umlaut above yeah. the or something. <laughs> but like honestly, that that's a good parody of like what corporations try to do to like make something seem like a product a shitty product seem like sexy and like exotic but not too exotic and like because it's like european so like that's that's the good kind of exotic you know yeah i think that's fair um there were as we were saying earlier the business stuff is kind of just um nonsense and and made up and they obviously didn't put a lot of effort into making us understand you know the ramifications of uh, of this shoe and its recall but i did think um some of the the scenes of drew at work um were mm. a good kind of parody of you know corporate culture like when he's like we had one day where we uh exalted the uh italian creator of leather but the italians didn't create leather <laughs> rubber 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 oh yeah rubber yeah. <laughs> it, no, it's so fucking like Honestly, the the thing about the the corporate politics of this movie that I did like is um like like in reality when when corporations make these pr- design products or whatever it's it's never the brainchild of one creative person like like it's like a Steve Jobs myth like, like that's bullshit it, it it is like legions of teams and in groups and stuff that kind of work together and put out something um like like I I know nothing about the shoe industry but I'm I'm fairly confident that like there is no one guy that designs everything about the shoe that, that that's like, that, that's not how modern business works. Um, but when products fail, I do think part of the corporate culture is to hold individuals accountable as scapegoats. Um, so, so that depiction, as far as like that very simplistic depiction of what happens to Drew, um, despite itself, despite this movie, wasn't like a bad um, play by play of how like shit goes down. Yeah. I think that's true. Um, and speaking of a play-by-play of how shit goes down, um, let's not do a play-by-play of everything in this movie. But <laughs> <laughs> we should talk about the scenes in Kentucky, of course. Um, mm-hmm. They are the bulk of this film. And then um, his road trip, Drew's road trip after the funeral. Yeah. Um, so Drew's family, uh, the uh, what are, they're called the California Baylor's uh, Baylor is the last name um, because they lived in California for like 18 months or something, but they're actually from Oregon. Uh, And uh, so they are very much, uh, you know, a different, they are kind of, you know, your West coast elites, if you will. Um, Whereas Kentucky is the salt of the earth um, folk who uh, hate Susan Sarandon's character because she took away their, you know, their, their hometown boy, their hometown hero, um the the father character whose name escapes me mitch that's right mitch, mitch. Make it, mitch. there's a funny scene um that is just um another you know manic pixie dream girl aspect where uh kristen dunst just goes on and on about like names and how names mm-hmm. mean thing and uh, you know it's if she wasn't such you know a, uh an aspect and uh actualization of this trope like maybe that would have been an interesting scene but like it just it's just another, you know, it's another nail in the manic pixie dream coffin. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the, the family divide, it's very much stereotypical. Um, 
sitcom level like wine track versus beer track snobs versus slobs kind of thing um when when drew rolls into town he he gets this ridiculous like it reminded me of of like 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 a scene from armageddon like when they show like the shots of like oh this is like salt of the earth hometown americana <laughs> right. and like, like he's driving down the main street of elizabethtown and like like the children are waving at him the army vets in front of the, the va office are waving at him like yeah the police everybody's telling him where to go like they're all yeah the police like, you gotta go that's everyone. how you get to the funeral home yeah and everyone's holding up like oh like we love mitch like welcome home drew <laughs> it's, it's so ridiculous yeah. and um and then and then he pulls into the funeral direct pulls into the funeral parlor and he meets his cousin jesse who is the good version of drew in this movie <laughs> he's the <laughs> he's the good fail son he's, he's the positive uh proletariat fail son of this movie yeah so jesse is played by uh paul schneider um who got his start in independent uh films um uh all the real girls i think is one of the first films he was in and um that is by the director who did pineapple express who started doing uh actual Mm. uh independent movies like george washington but um i digress uh so yeah, Jesse is like he was in this band called Ruckus, but then that didn't work out. So he's just like at one point, uh, Orlando Bloom's like, "Oh, so you work on computers now?" Um, and he has this like feral child named Samson who just like screams at the highest decibel possible. <laughs> Samson's um, the other good character. Samson's my favorite character in this movie. He's just a screaming <laughs> feral child who like refuses to be domesticated. <laughs> he's just like he he takes a ham at one point and he feeds oh, yeah. it. He's into two dogs. <laughs> yeah, he is. He's the anarcho-communist uh, fail son of this movie, or maybe even primitivist. Uh, yeah, this movie. Samson's Samson's and Prim, um, who has like a strained but loving relationship with his um, Ancom father. Yeah, that's that's correct. Um, yeah, and Jesse, um, played by Paul Schneider, has uh, these two amazing lines. Um, yes, so yes. when we first meet him, uh, and you know, he's like, "Oh my God, is that Drew Baylor?" Um, he gives him a big hug, and he says uh, to Orlando Bloom's character, "He says, this loss will be met with a hurricane of love." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which later, when yeah. you realize this guy is like, you know, in a rock band, like that's like I, that's just like perfect characterization. Honestly, like him and Susan Sarandon are the characters with actual characterization mm-hmm. in this movie. You, you could actually, it, it should have been about Jesse and like his, his like arrogant elitist snob prick of a cousin who sweeps into his life. But then his like, his aunt who he thinks is like that, but also has like real depth to her. That would have been such a much better movie than this piece of shit. Yeah, for sure. And you could argue that Jesse's character um, has more of a relationship with Mitch, you know, Drew's Absolutely. father. because. Absolutely. Drew never goes to Kentucky with his father. It's even a plot point that they were supposed to drive to Kentucky mm-hmm. together, but he died before they could do that. Um, so too busy designing like Crocs or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> it, it looks like like a, uh, a like a yeah a more like sports Croc. Like, <laughs> that is what that that yeah a sports shoe Croc. Yeah. Um, and then there's another great line Jesse says later in the film when his father. Um, played by uh, the folk singer uh, Luden Wainwright is saying mm. like you can't be friends with your son. So which, in this analogy, uh, the grandfather of Samson is a stress right. <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. Uh, and so Jesse, in in response, says, "I teach him about Abraham Lincoln and Ronnie Van Zant because in my house they're both of equal importance." <laughs> <laughs> 
That is good. I relate to that because in my house, uh, Warren Zevon will be of equal importance to Abraham Lincoln. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I'll, teach, I'll teach my non-existent son about uh, about him. Um, <laughs> yeah, the, and also also in in Drew's extended family is uh, Paula Dean as as like, oh yeah as oh, Mitch. Shit. Was she supposed to be Mitch's sister? She, I believe so. Her name is Aunt Dora. I right. believe she's Mitch's sister. Mm-hmm. Or something. Cause, but at one point she hits on Drew. She's like, oh, this, isn't the, this is the first time I invited a, an attractive young city slicker into my bedroom or something. <laughs> That's right. So like, and then she says the N-word. No, she doesn't actually do that. She, um, no, but I, I did see uh, one of the houses um, in the front yard during Drew's entry montage had like a derby statue. Like, like one of those oh. jockey... Which, mm-hmm. which has like a racist it connotation. Does. Does yeah. Ra- yeah, so let's just imagine that was her house. Yeah, yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> and this is like the only movie she was in, and I think it's because she's a terrible actor. Oh, she, she's awful. She has two or three lines of dialogue. I imagine she had more in the shooting script, but they had to cut mm-hmm. it out once they realized Paula Dean could not act. But staying on brand, um, except for the scene where she shows the photographs to Drew, like literally every other, sh- and, and the funeral literally every other scene she's in she's like cooking something <laughs> she's like with, yeah she has like food and she's preparing it <laughs> so yeah the introduction Brent's of her character she's she is uh cooking um some kind of like pancake looking thing uh it looks it looks Come. delicious uh, <laughs> yeah it looks good all the food in the movie looks good honestly yeah, yeah. um so i mean kudos to her for that but i mean um, samson and, agrees he he gave it to the dogs as because they deserve it more than than paula dean's racist people <laughs> <laughs> yeah and i think this is before she got like the, all all that uh the debacle for, over um her this it was like what was her like her son's wedding they had like um like black people as the servers and dressed like slaves or something like wasn't that the story and then that someone in her family said like yeah she says the n-word like all the time yeah like it it was originally a minor thing that kicked off like alleged revelations about her personal life that were were racist who the fuck cares she's I don't think she's relevant anymore to, to anything. No, I don't um, think she is. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't even think people use her recipes anymore. I, I think there was like controversy about them being like super unhealthy and stuff like that. I don't know, but uh, she's a terrible actress, terrible person. Uh, life uh, imitates reality, and or it, uh, art imitates reality, yeah. and life does too. I guess whatever. <laughs> so, so back to this terrible movie. Um, <laughs> yeah, Jesse. Jesse, like we were saying, he's really interesting. He had a lot going on because. Um, he he's in a band and and they had opened for Le- uh, Leonard Skinner at one point and he's he's like really proud of it and um, he has like this whole wall in his house of like all his old band memorabilia. Uh, he actually uh, makes the uh, funeral scene at the end of this movie. Oh my god! Uh, yes. The most interesting. Well, I should say again, the two characters that we like the most, Susan Sarandon and mm-hmm. Jesse, make the funeral scene interesting. Yeah, probably one of the more interesting scenes of this film. Uh, Jesse. Uh, he gets his band ruckus back together and at one point when he's like telling all of his uncles he's like oh man they're flying in from florida ruckus is getting back together and they all just look at him like we don't give a shit like get the <laughs> fuck out of this room that's a Felson moment that's so good yeah it it is big Felson energy uh for sure <laughs> but he gets he gets ruckus together at the the f- funeral uh ceremony that's at a ho- hotel um and uh yeah they're playing uh free bird actually yep. and uh they have like this giant paper mache like eagle <laughs> that's on a pulley system that's supposed to go out 
you know over the crowd but it uh catches fire how does it catch uh, on fire again i have no idea i think the lights i guess the like the the spotlights probably they're they're just too close yeah yeah you know they are pretty powerful and they they can do that okay uh, and then there's like a big banner that has like the last thing that like Mitch said to his family on it. Uh, if it's, it was like, if it isn't this, it's something else that goes on fire. The sprinkler system starts, but uh, Jesse and his band like keep playing. They commit. The, the He's it's banging so away at his drums. He, <laughs> he does not let that phase him. Oh, it's, it, it is good. And um, the, the, the ostensible leads of this, of this film, uh, <laughs> Drew and Drew and Claire, <laughs> they don't deserve, they don't deserve that. Cause um, after Drew connects with reconnects with his family, he he he's really lonely. This is kind of fail sunny. He's really lonely and he's kind of like bored in his hotel. So he's like calling everybody in his cell phone. Um, he calls like his ex. He calls his sister, and no one's picking up. And then he calls Claire, and she picks up, and um, that kicks off like a twelve hour long conversation that they have because she lives in she lives near Elizabethtown, and he's at a hotel in Elizabethtown. And they just talk and talk and talk. And it's the most banal, faux, deep sounding bullshit you can imagine. Um, the, 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 Thankfully this, in small bursts too. Like, right. Yeah. Like we don't, we don't get the whole conversation. And like, that is a godsend. Thank you, Cameron Crowe yeah, for like cutting the scene the way you did. It's the power of editing folks. It's the magic of cinema. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it's unbearable. It's just tr- like tripe a 14 year old writes it, it, it like in, in their, yeah, it, on their Zanga or something. Um, but there is a good scene. You 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 marked you you told you mentioned this, and I do agree. When um at the hotel that Drew's staying at, there's a wedding going on. Yes, yeah, Cindy and Chuck. Cindy and Chuck, and like the, Cindy and Chuck's wedding party took over the entire fucking hotel. And so Drew, at one point, on like hour eleven of his conversation, he 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 sees an open door, and he tries to sneak in to steal um beer that's cooling in a tub full of ice from Chuck's suite. I wish he was cooling in a tub full of ice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so he steals some rolling rocks and like he, he's sneaking back out and then Chuck's like accosts him. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then they they have like this heart to heart because like he tells him his dad's dead and Chuck's Chuck's really nice. Chuck's like cool. Yeah. And he, he lets him take the beer and he gives him a hug and everything. Um, but besides that brief moment of, uh, of levity, it, it's a really long sequence that's really difficult to get through. <laughs> Yeah, and when it cuts back to um, Krista Dunst, you know, it always like has to show her doing something like quirky, or you know, she's even dressed quirky. Like she just has like a T-shirt that says Maker's Mark, and mm-hmm. she's in like you know, like very you know, low cut like jogging shorts, and like she's doing you know all these like errands and things. And at one point, she even gets in like the bathtub, and mm-hmm. you know, she's uh, she like makes him listen to like a Ryan Adams song to show that like she has good musical taste. Yeah, uh, it's it's just like it's just a layered layer of fucking bullshit um i but you know it it is well edited and like if the dialogue was better i think it's it is a good scene it's it's a good um even before it's just him and claire because like you said it's at one point it's uh drew claire uh judy greer's character and Mm -hmm. jessica beale all on this like four-way conversation and he's cutting back and forth and you know like i again if the dialogue was good there uh it it could be a really well done scene Mm -hmm. Um, so I don't want to just, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, but, um, yeah, this, this show is ostensibly about the good things in bad movies. <laughs> <laughs> Remember that folks. Remember. This is, this, this is, uh, this is hard mode. This, this is the dark souls of, of pro, of pro con right now. 
<laughs> or the the Sikaru as uh, oh yeah to be talking to about be, right now to be more current. <laughs> um, but if we uh, fast forward and go back to um, the the funeral scene or the you know uh, wake or celebration of life scene uh, before everything goes to shit uh, before the mm. you know eagle goes on fire uh, Susan Sarandon uh, after like the whole Kentucky family does um, their eulogies and which you just see small portions of um, there is the final eulogy Susan Sarandon's eulogy for her uh, husband and um, it's kind of like a stand-up routine basically because she even mentions like she, I, I learned to do stand-up yeah. uh, you know and I, she, she mentions all the the previous activities uh, that I that we, had, we had talked about um, but yeah it's I mean it's again it's great characterization mm-hmm. she does a little tap dance thing which I know uh, Nathan Rabin in his review really was uh, was down on but no that fuck just shows him. he's that, a fucking hack yeah yeah like the, <laughs> the way she introduces the tap dance it was honestly really touching she like she turns around to this big po- like this big blown up photograph of him she's like and I learned how to dance and this is for you my love my darling like I love you and then she dances and like that it is a corny line and it is a corny um thing just like out of context but like she sells it because she's a good fucking actress and like it i i thought it was like one of the better moments of of the entire eulogy if not the entire film yeah definitely and the fact that she has that moment and that drew doesn't have any moment at the funeral really highlights the fact that like this film should not be about him like there is nothing throughout this movie that makes me think this should be about this character like Every yeah. other side character is way more interesting mm-hmm. than Drew, which makes me think everybody involved in the production of this is more interesting than Cameron Crowe. Yes. <laughs> I mean, the the way to do this movie with Drew as the main character would have been an examination of um, depersonalizing from grief, an examination of like how someone is so overwhelmed with trauma or grief that um, they can see other people responding to it in, in sad ways, but in more healthy and open ways, but like, but them not being able to connect and not even be able, being able to cry at their own father's funeral or whatever, but it, right. it's, it's not presented as that it's presented as like this wonky adventure. No. And you know what we could, if we want to give this film a more generous read, um, the real grief that Drew has in this film is the grief of the loss of his job. Yes. Like, of of that failure. Is, of failure of this fiasco as he keeps talking fiasco, about it. Yes, it. so um you know this i think this is a good example of um like we were saying the corporate culture mm-hmm. and how that kind of invades your life and that's all you can think about uh, again this is a very generous read i doubt this is what cameron crowe was going for but yes. fuck it death of the author um like at the point when um after uh drew and claire actually do hook up they have sex in the hotel room at one point um after that when she's like doing her like walk of shame uh he does catch up with her finally he wakes up catches up with her in the morning and like she's like aren't you just gonna say like i love you and then he just like goes into like his dark secret because he he hasn't told her previously about like his job and his failure but like that's the thing he's he talks to her about immediately he just tells her you know he unloads on her about all this this you know this this grief and trauma he has in his life but none of it is about his dad like it's no. all about this stupid fucking shoe and like again like you were saying like like that's not a bad read like like there's there's a there's a kernel of a good idea there um but it's not explored 
within the movie itself. So like right. that that's how you know it's it's that's that wasn't the A that that wasn't the intended message. B that Cameron Crowe doesn't understand that that message that we just kind of ad hoc applied. And C um Oh, Andrew Bloom's character is a sociopath. <laughs> like, <laughs> it really is. Oh my god. Um so um the last portion of the film, it's I guess the last twenty minutes. Oh my god, uh, it's so Claire- <laughs> fucking dumb. Claire gives uh, at the funeral ceremony, <laughs> Claire gives Drew a uh handmade map no, it's like a uh, scrapbook it's like thick yeah it's like a scrapbook yeah he's supposed to go uh, when when they were on their previous phone conversation uh she convinces him to go on a road trip back home so from K- kentucky to oregon he's going to do a road trip yeah, yeah. and um she gives him it has like a narration of she gets a narration at this point uh through like cds that she made she made this mixtape for him that's like punctuated almost minute by minute of like places he should go yeah uh, things he should see um so i um you know i just this part is baffling (laughs) i i there, there are two places he goes to that i I had to pause this movie and like yell about because I was like not I wasn't even mad about it I was like I was just it was ballsy yeah you you, you texted me as you were watching it you're like (laughs) yeah it takes you immediately like this film this made me write across the top of my page big dumbass energy (laughs) like that is this film the thesis of this film is big dumbass energy a person who doesn't understand the the importance and significance of these moments in history and puts them in his own personal story is big dumbass energy um yeah. so nick i'll let you take the first moment okay. and then i will take the second moment in history that is highlighted in this road trip so yeah um as as he's driving back as he's driving west from kentucky he passes through tennessee of course um and when he's in tennessee he passes through memphis so it's like oh that that makes sense you know like these some of the only characterization that these two characters has, like they're, they're both really into music and like they both share music with each other, blah, blah, blah. So yeah, I guess it makes sense. He would step by Memphis. Um, but then he sees some of the sites in Memphis and one of the sites that he stops at is the hotel where Martin, the motel where Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. And he like walks into the, the museum portion of it and he's like stroking his chin, like nodding. Like, hmm. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I I too have a dream. <laughs> it's just <laughs> like I can understand like seeing historical sites on a road trip. Like yeah, that makes sense. Like anyone who passes through Memphis, if, if they're taking like a, a wandering, free spirited road trip, like sure, you you would see the the motel where where MLK was killed. But the way it's folded into this montage of like th- th- this like doofus like like learning how to live and like. And like wonder in the world, like the world is is your playground if you only let it be so. It, it's just so self-absorbed, and we've thrown around the word narcissistic a lot for this film, but like like that is how the narcissist interprets the world. That other people and other events are mechanisms through which you you either work through or work with to like to to make sense of your own story. And, and that is 100%, that is 100% the big dumbass energy that I picked up um, from from this 
15 seconds of Orlando Bloom hmm, stroking his chin, <laughs> looking at looking at the looking at the hotel motel back in balcony where he was killed. Yeah, uh, it's it's I just I it was I, I was speechless. I'm still speechless. <laughs> I, I barked and like, laughed. Like, yeah. When Nathan Rabin says, you know, he thinks about this movie all the time, I will forever think about this movie because of this scene and because of the next, the next stop. Even shorter. Five seconds. Even shorter. Um, so, you know, there's this rambling narration of Kristen Dunces and she says something, blah, blah, blah. Uh, good morning. And this is a early morning scene. He is in uh, the car and she's like oh you have to stop here I, I love this uh this tree i love this tree a lot um so on the map we see uh in highlighter uh the the words oklahoma city uh and uh the tree she's referring to is the survivor tree which is part of the memorial for the oklahoma city bombing uh perpetrated by timothy mcveigh white nationalist white supremacist militia guy Drew and Drew and Claire are white supremacists confirmed. <laughs> well, it's strange, right? Like you go to MLK's assassination spot. You don't go to like where he, you know, like his home. No, right. Like, and also, aren't there like a lot of Proud Boys and like white supremacists in Oregon? Yes. So that's a, that's a hot spot. Yeah. Confirmed. <laughs> it's confirmed. You know. Uh, so the end of this film, they actually go to uh, a farmer's market. They should have went to a gun show. Like that was. That should have been the ending mm, of this yeah. film. Well, but the the farmers market thing, like that, that's like a like a weekend warrior, bougie, yuppie type thing to do. Yeah, that's true. That's like low grade white supremacy. Mm. That's that's fair. Um, but Oklahoma City bombing, yep. Survivor Memorial, for two seconds, they don't even mention the bombing. They don't dwell on it. They just show you the Survivor tree and then the like uh, impressionist artwork statues around, uh, like. It's just b- mind blown. I'm a, I'm a little like tired today, so I, I didn't really like. I I had I just watched the, the last fucking ten minutes of this movie before right before we recorded this, but like I didn't really pick up on that. Like like that's how that's how poorly it was presented. Like yeah, okay, you see Oklahoma City and you see a memorial. I guess your average person who who was aware of who's aware of like current events would put that together, but like it. it didn't really say what memorial it is. I, I thought it was like a, a at first like a Holocaust memorial or something. Like it, it it's just I don't know. It baffling, <laughs> really strange. Yeah, I just um, I would if I ever meet Cameron Crowe, if I ever go to a Q and A, I will have to ask him why he thought it was relevant uh, to his personal story and the story of Drew Baylor to include MLK's assassination oh my spot. God, yeah. And the Oklahoma City bombing, because I just, um, it, I just, again, speechless, folks. Yeah, speechless. It's the the fact that I read a bunch of reviews that didn't mention this just shows like how fucked up film like criticism is. The fact that no one like just just you know like laser focused into that moment of this film mm-hmm. is baffling to me. And again, like to be fair, including these stops as, as as stops on a road trip um in and of itself is completely fine it it, it i i could i could see a road movie or even like a, a sequence a road sequence of a movie in like a person visiting these these locations just yeah that makes sense if like the the fictional the fictional trip takes them through memphis and oklahoma city but 
it, it's it's all about tone because like like so much of this distasteful stuff in any bad movie that we review like it's all it, so much of it all comes down to tone and how it treats these things like how it treats these <laughs> these memorials as as we were saying like parts of a quirky like where's Waldo trip <laughs> it's like yeah definitely and and you know during the Memphis stop he goes to like you know studios that Elvis, Elvis had stuff, recorded yeah. in. He went to this one like diner of this guy who'd owned it for 38 years and he, you know, would serve uh, singers and songwriters. So like, it's all fun and games until mm. out of nowhere, MLK, Oklahoma city. Like then there's this one scene at, right after the Oklahoma city scene. She says like, okay, now go dance in this like quiet area. Good. And I was like, what are, you, what are you, what are you dancing on? Like an Indian burial ground? Like, what, what the fuck? is this scene it was like that's really when i was like this is just going to take the white nationalist turn right now like he's going to go read the turner diaries <laughs> oh my god yeah I, I i would actually i would say that again completely unwitting not intentional but th- this is a good depiction of like white liberalism like, yeah. like in- incorpor- incorporating like historical moments and the 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 interpretation of united states atrocities as like vehicles for personal um self-actualization yeah no i think that's correct um so speaking of actualization uh there are people who uh make this film possible who actualize uh characters and those people are the (laughs) cast the actors uh involved in the making of this film uh we spoke a lot about them you know we generally don't do actor kudos in this section so we're gonna uh, highlight uh those uh individuals in the casting department of this film for our workers of note section and i will say really quick um i've been ragging on orlando bloom a lot um but he, he doesn't really do a, a terrible job in this and, and kirsten Dunst doesn't, doesn't even do a terrible job it's just the material that they both have to work with yeah for sure i think they're both great uh actors mm-hmm. uh, kirsten Dunst. if you look at her career, um, especially in this period of time uh, and just prior, like the 90s when she starts out, I mean, oh, it's yeah. like banger after banger. Yep. I mean, she's in incredible movies, you know, yep. and then like I, she's still sort of, I mean, I don't know, you know, it's it's hard uh, to she, say. Orlando Bloom is kind of off the map entirely. Like I haven't, I don't think he even makes movies anymore. I know, I know Kirsten Dunst was in, was in stuff like Melancholia, which I really liked. Um she even says the word melancholy in this, yeah. and I like put I, I note that down. I was like, haha, yeah, foreshadowing. Uh, yes. Psychic Kirsten Dunst using her interview with a vampire psychic powers to uh, predict the future. <laughs> uh, Orlando Bloom's kind of making a comeback because like they did, they did the Hobbit movies and they did um, he's in like more Pirates of the Caribbean stuff and I don't know. I think he's dating Katy Perry, so he gets a lot of he gets a lot of press from that. I don't know. I that all seems like that's five years ago. I don't even. Yeah, know that's true. He's up to. Yeah. I'm sure I'm sure they're both happy and successful. Yeah. And not to knock any of these people as people except Alec Baldwin and Paula Dean. Yeah, except it, yeah, except Alec Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, casting so, department, take it away. Casting department. Uh so uh Gail Levine, Andrew S. Brown, Natasha Cuba, Jason Kennedy, Rich King, Barbara J. McCarthy, Kim McCrae, Caitlin McKenna, Abdul Majid Mulvi, Kim Petrosky. Keen Cronin, Elizabeth Sujin Ford, Chris Freihofer, Michael Glenn, Krista Jablonski, Mara Kelly, Tyler R. Mann, Mike Moore, and Mandy Overton. Um, you did a good job, people. Mm-hmm. You cast 
the right cast. Good job, everyone. Um, the other the other huge area that I really want to we, we we touched upon it, but I, I just want to emphasize emphasize again how incredible the soundtrack is. Like there there are so many good like you know two two main camps two two main two main genres of songs that are really good in this in the soundtrack. Um, lots of like indie. Uh, kind of down tempo, sad, um, introspective songs in in lot. Yeah, and that's all like my morning jacket because um, mm. they're a Kentucky. They're from Kentucky, so they were hired oh, nice. to do those songs, basically, like the more contemporary songs. Yeah, and then and then the the other track is the like the more classical blue like bluegrass um, kind of jangly guitar, very dyed in the wool Kentucky stuff. Um, good, but yeah, like. The, the the soundtrack is so good. Like I actually want to go out and listen to some of the artists that are included on it. Um, just to always looking for new stuff to add to the repertoire, to add to the Spotify playlist. I, I definitely am going to do that. Um, so kudos definitely to Nancy Wilson. Um, un, under the crew that I could find, she, she was the first name just under music, uh, listed. So I assume she was in charge of, um, arranging the soundtrack. So really well done job to, to Miss Wilson. Um, but also in the music department, um, we have Mike Inez um, as on bass, Carlton Keller, uh, scoring mixer, supervising music editor, Jason Ruder, music editor, Deborah Scher, musician, concert harp, Ben Smith, musician, drums, Jason Stockwell, multi-instrument coordinator, Nancy Wilson again, um, musician, all instruments, Denise Carver, music clearances, uncredited, so special, uh, special note here, uh, Bud Raymond, music playback operator, again, uncredited, um, special note and Gary Raymond music playback. And for our final uncredited, um, worker of note. Yeah. So, uh, Nick, who would you recommend this film to? Okay. So for our, our broke recommendation, uh, any New York times op-ed hack columnists who are really trying to write that perfect article about reaching the soul of the Midwestern Trump voter. Cause, <laughs> cause at the end, at the end, Oh my God. Drew and Claire are, are white supremacist Trump voters. Cause she says, Look for the girl in the red hat at the farmer's oh, market. Oh, shit. So, any... any MAGA. Any, any uh, coastal elite uh, Oregonian hack op-ed columnists who are really going on one of those Trump safari tours that are all the rage um, could do a lot worse than the... the they, they probably imagine everyone in Kentucky is like this. Yeah. And to just piggyback off of that broke recommendation, um, this isn't going to be the woke or bespoke, but just to piggyback off of it, um, Ron Howard, you should watch this uh, before you make your version of Hillbilly Elegy for Netflix. His, his version of what? Hillbilly Elegy. That's Ron Howard. Oh, my God. Hillbilly yeah. Elegy for Netflix, oh uh, starring Amy Adams, I think. Sh- yep. Sorry. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Amy Adams is way too good for that show. Um, yeah. So, um, but yeah, our... our woke recommendation is for uh free range child rearing <laughs> advocates uh based on the jesse uh samson relationship uh yeah really incredible stuff um we didn't mention this but there's this great scene uh where claire gives drew oh a my god old yes. school vhs to like soothe all these feral children yes and uh it's it's like it's this like just burly looking dude at a construction site named rusty and he's like now kids if you're nice to your parents i'm gonna blow up this house the, the movie talks to them 
he's like, do, do you want to see yeah. me blow up this house? And the kids nod. Yeah. You're like, are you going to listen to your parents? And they nod again. Like, and I know that's like a child's <laughs> video, like editing thing, but it was pretty fucking specific for, like, for the interaction. <laughs> yeah. But, um, so, uh, everybody who wants to, uh, just kind of have, you know, more feral children, but also be able to calm them down. You just got to blow your house up. Mm-hmm. Um, and the bespoke recommendation is for, uh, Bernie 2020 uh, delegates. Um, hell yeah, Susan Sarandon <laughs> did nothing wrong. She was right. Uh, everyone's slandering her is is, is, is is part of the problem. Um, Bernie 2020 all the way. Yeah, that's it, folks. That's uh, that is why we did this episode. <laughs> so <it's always. laughs> oh my god, yeah. Uh, see you next time, folks. Bye. This day on, I own my father's gun. We dug a shallow grave beneath the sun. A lady's broken body down below the southern land. It wouldn't do to bury him. Yankee stand I take my horse